Well, we are continuing with our study through Psalm 119 this morning. Today we're looking at the ninth stanza in this psalm, which is verses 65 through 72. As we've noted, all of Psalm 119 is written by someone who is dealing with pressure and challenge uh, because he's living in a culture that is hostile to his faith. There's a number of ways that we see the psalmist things that he writes about that help us to see what he does to enable him to persevere in what he's going through. Uh, the first thing he does is pray. I mean, each of these stanzas contains prayers to God for help in bringing his circumstances to God. Secondly, we also see an emphasis in almost every verse that the psalmist recognizes the great importance of the scriptures in his life as he deals with what he's having to face on a regular basis. Um, he speaks of his dependence on the word of God. He continues to ask for further understanding of the scriptures. He commits himself to keep the scriptures. He asks God to incline his heart toward those testimonies, as well as asking God to actually make him walk in the way of his commandments. So he clearly understands the central importance of the scriptures, but also understands enough about his own heart and his own life that he knows he doesn't follow as consistently as he should and is regularly asking God for help. We've also seen a number of other emphases in these uh, stanzas. The psalmist has included, for example, a lament for sin that he sees in the culture around him as well as the sin he sees in his own life. He has prayed in some detail about his own need for spiritual growth. He has prayed about his desire to be a faithful witness to the Lord, even among those who are mocking him for his faith. He also talked about the need to remember, to remember the work that the Lord had done in his life and in the lives of others. And this remembrance is one of the things that will encourage him and encourages us as we remember how faithful God has been and we can trust him to continue to be faithful. Well, last week we noted that the psalmist spoke about the fact that the Lord is his portion. The Lord is his inheritance. His circumstances were discouraging from many angles, but he belonged body and soul to the Lord, and the Lord belonged to him. Every aspect of his life was centered around honoring the Lord. Even when he was surrounded by wicked people, the Lord was with him and enabled him to keep the precepts of God. The stanza that we're looking at today continues to speak of the God's help in times of affliction. So let's look at Psalm 119, verse 65 to 72. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. We're going to consider these verses in three sections. Uh, first, verses 65 to 67. We see how the Lord proved himself faithful in the past and had, in fact, brought much good into his life in his past. Secondly, in verses 68 to 70, we see that since God is good and does good, 
He was sustaining his servant in the present. And then thirdly, in verses 71 to 72, we're going to look at some lessons that the psalmist uh, lays out that he had learned from the fact that his good God had intervened in his life in so many amazing ways. So our first main point is this. God's servants know that he has proven himself to be faithful in the past and has brought good into their life through the afflictions that they have faced. We noted earlier that in verses 49 to 56, the psalmist talked about the importance of remembering. Well, he's bringing that up again here in verses 65 to 70. In verse 65, he's remembering that the Lord dealt well with him. In verse 67, he's remembering the fact that there was a time he went astray in God's word in some ways. But then the Lord brought affliction into his life, which served to bring him back to the Lord. He's remembering that. So it's important, again, in our Christian growth to remember how God has worked in our lives in the past. One of the things we can learn from this is his next point. Even when all things seem to be against them, Christians can be certain that their God always deals kindly with his servants. He always deals kindly with his servants. Verse 65, he says, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Once again, first, we see that the psalmist describes himself as God's servant. Seems to be one of his favorite ways to describe who he is before the Lord. That's really his fundamental identity. Yes, he's somebody's son. Um, he's maybe somebody's husband. He may be someone's father. He may be a citizen of the place where he is living. But the most important title, the most important aspect of defining who he is, is that he is a servant of God. So he's, that means he's a man who, by God's grace, has seen himself as a sinner. He has understood that he actually does stand condemned before God because of his sin. But the Lord has also revealed to him that there is a Savior, there is a promised Messiah, whom the Lord will give as a substitute for those who believe. The Lord will cause his iniquity to fall upon this Christ. We read these things in Isaiah 53. He is one who will suffer and die. He is one who will be cut off from the land of the living. But he's also one who will see his offspring, which is a prophecy about his resurrection. And so, therefore, all those who put their faith in this resurrected Savior will be saved. And, of course, in his perspective, it was the coming Christ. From our perspective, is the Christ who has already come. But we equally, as well as the, along with this one who wrote, are servants of God because of our faith in Christ as our Lord. And Savior. So in verse 65, the psalmist is proclaiming that the Lord had dealt well with his servant. Now, back in verse 17, he had asked the Lord in prayer to deal bountifully with his servant. Well, in that verse, in this verse, I mean, he affirms that the Lord has done just that. The Lord has dealt bountifully with him. It's also important to see the context of this confession. He's not saying everything has really worked out well. He's not saying that he's not had trials, that he's not had suffering. He's not saying that he has not dealt with very cruel and difficult rejection from others. On the contrary, to this point in the psalm, he has been saying just the opposite. 
just give you a few a few things to jar your memory here. Verse 8. He was so concerned about the things he was facing that he says, asked the Lord, don't forsake me utterly. The idea was he needs help because of what's going on, and he greatly needs the Lord to be with him. Verse 19, he describes himself as being a stranger in the earth. It's clear he doesn't fit in. He can tell. It's obvious. Verse 25, he says, my soul cleaves to the dust. So he was going through a very dark time, times, I could probably say, in part of what was going in part because of what was going on around him. In verse 28, he says, My soul weeps because of grief. So this is a deep, heartfelt lament that he's praying. Verse 39, he says, Turn away my reproach, which I dread. So there are great temptations that he's dealing with to turn away from following the Lord, and he does not want the shame of knowing that he has actually done that because that temptation is really there. Verse 51, he speaks of how prideful and arrogant people have derided him. In other words, they mock and slander him for his faith. In verse 61, he speaks of the fact that he is surrounded by wicked people who reject the word of God. So in just those few verses we see that the psalmist has dealt with a lot. There is a lot that he's going through. Things have been hard. And it's in that context that he says, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord. This is not to say that the psalmist never had any questions or frustrations with how things were going. That lament may have been part of that. But here, God in his goodness has given him a more accurate view of the things in the past, and he's certain that God truly has dealt in kind ways with him. It's a reminder to us to trust God's providence. We can't see, we can't understand everything that God is doing. There's always going to be so much that just doesn't make sense to us. But the word tells us God is good. We know his plan, therefore his plan is good. We know that he has loved each of his servants from before the foundation of the earth. So according to his word, he deals well with his servants. But sometimes we get confused here. It's not always clear to us. Let's consider Jacob, for example. You know the story of how Jacob's sons sold their brother Joseph into slavery told their father, lied to their father, said that he's dead, animal must have killed him. You know how God worked in Joseph's life in just remarkable ways. He went from being a slave to being put in prison to being raised up to second in command in Egypt. And then when Jacob's other sons went to Egypt to get grain in the middle of that terrible famine, Joseph recognized him. They didn't recognize him, but he recognized them and told them they couldn't come back unless they brought their younger brother, who was Benjamin, with them. He kept Simeon, another brother, in Egypt as collateral. Well, when Jacob's sons returned and they told him what had happened, this is what he says in Genesis 42, 36. Jacob says, All things are against me. Jacob said, all things are against me. He had lost Joseph. He had lost Simeon. Now they wanted to take Benjamin. 
So was he right that all things were against him? No. He was absolutely wrong. Matter of fact, he was on the verge of finding out Joseph was still alive and that he was going to take care of him and take care of his whole family in the middle of this drought. God was dealing well with his servant, but his servant couldn't see it at the time. What do you have in your life that causes you to doubt whether God is working well with you, is doing well by you? Well, remember how he's been faithful to you in the past, because he has been, and acknowledge to him that he's continuing to deal kindly with you, even in the present, which leads to our next point. Believers must trust the Lord to give them good discernment and knowledge especially when their understanding of his dealings with them is unclear. Verse 66 is a very helpful follow-up to verse 65, where it's talking about the Lord has dealt well in verse 65, according to your word. Verse 66, teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Sometimes we can't see the hand of God in our circumstances. Sometimes all we can see is that things are not going well. All we can see is that there's so much going on that makes life hard. So we need the Lord to teach us good discernment and knowledge. The word for discernment can also be translated as judgment. Some of your versions probably do that. Interesting enough, it can also be translated as taste. Taste. That's interesting. It brings in the idea of asking the Lord to give a hunger, a taste for divine truth. Sometimes we can see biblical doctrine as something that is dry and boring and just doesn't feel like it's that helpful much of the time, all that's exactly opposite of what doctrine really is. And it, because it's in knowing the doctrine of who God is that we come to see how gloriously good he is, for example. And if you can get a taste for the goodness of God, then you can have a greater discernment about what's happening in your life. And that discernment can enable us to take the biblical knowledge that we have and apply it to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. It's so easy to approach our situation simply from what we can understand based on our observations on what we see or what we hear. And when that happens, if we just base it on that, what happens, we can easily get frustrated, we can get mad, we can get confused. We can have no sense of the fact that God is actually at work. But since he is good, and since you are his servant, he is always at work for good in your life. He always is. So it's our belief in God's commandments and the basic doctrines of the faith that give us a framework, really, for trusting him when things seem awry, when they just seem unclear. Well, then the psalmist makes this amazing confession in verse 67. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So our next point is this. God in his goodness faithfully uses affliction to cause his servants to grow in their faith and commitment to him. Before the psalmist was afflicted, apparently things were going pretty smoothly. He was not apparently going through major trials. 
that's really what we would like our life to always be like, never really going through trials. But that's a dangerous place to be when everything's going really well. That's a dangerous place to be. Moses made this comment about the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy 32:15. He says this. He says, Israel has grown fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick and sleek, sleek. And then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. So Israel was doing well. Israel was prospering, and I'm sure they were all glad about that. But in their prosperity, he says they forsook the Lord and began to scorn him. He was so good to them, and they began to forsake him. Unfortunately, that's really quite common. None of us want to deal with affliction. We want our relationships to go well. We want plenty of money to be able to buy the things that we need and maybe some things in addition to that. We want to be healthy, and none of those things are bad. It's not bad to have those kind of things. But our relationship with the Lord is often not what it should be in those times when everything is going really well. And that's where affliction comes in. The psalmist says before he was afflicted, he went astray. So he's grateful for the affliction that got his attention. It pressed him back to the Lord. And the good result of the affliction caused him to say, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord. It's often in times of affliction that we grow best in our Christian faith. I mean, affliction, we're more apt to pray because the needs are more pressing. In affliction, we're often more apt to consider the scriptures because we're kind of desperate for answers on what to do. In affliction, we may be more apt to open up to a Christian friend and look to their companionship for help. In affliction, the songs of praise we sing in worship are often a little more pointed, a little more meaningful as we sing them. God is good. He has proven himself to be faithful in the past. And in his goodness, he uses our afflictions to help us grow in our faith and commitment to him. Our second point, main point is this. God's servants are sustained by his goodness to them in the present, even when the arrogant callously work against him or against them. So the psalmist has remembered God's faithfulness in the past. In the next three verses, he speaks of how God helps him with affliction that he was dealing with in the present. So look, look at verse 68 to 70. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. A key theme here is what we see in verse 68. It speaks of the goodness of God. So from verse 68, we see this next point. God is perfectly good, perfectly good. And afflictions enable his servants to see his goodness in all that he does. To know that God is good is one of the most important aspects of his character that we need to dwell on. In fact, it is his goodness that is essential to his godness. If God is not essentially good, he is not God. 
His goodness is essential to his godness. You may remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus with questions about salvation. Maybe what he said in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is telling him that if the young man considers him, truly considers him to be good, then he must also be considering him to be God. Goodness is a title that only properly belongs to God. He's the only one who is perfect in goodness. One of the blessings of seeing God in our afflictions is that we see his goodness more clearly. We can see it more personally. And it's important to see all these things that God does as manifestations of his goodness. It says he is good and he does good. Let me, but think about this. All these different, there's so many different aspects of God's character that are all bound up in the fact that he's good. For example, God gives grace. That means that he grants favor to people who are sinners, who actually deserve his wrath. So instead, God in his grace grants salvation in Christ. Why does he do that? Because God is good. God gives mercy. This means that instead of giving us what we deserve, he gives us good good things, even things that can make us happy. Why does he do that? Because God is good. God is patient. He is long-suffering with people who persist in rebellion and unbelief. God is patient because God is good. God keeps his promises. Things like, I will never leave you or forsake you. Things like, I am your inheritance. Things like, I will see to it that every temptation you face, there will always be an escape, a way of escape. Things like, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. God makes these promises because he's good. He keeps these promises because he's a good God who can be trusted. And because God is good, he does good. He provides a savior because he's good. He applies salvation to sinners because he is good. He gives eternal life because he is good. He has given us his word because he is good. And because the word of God is good, we ask him to teach us, this good God, to teach us his word. So no matter how well you know the scriptures, you can understand them more fully. Being taught the scriptures is not a drudgery. Reading, hearing, being taught the word of God is something we want because our God is good and what he does is good and we want to understand that better. The better you know his word, the more personal that knowledge of his goodness becomes to you. Well, in verse 69, the psalmist gives us insight into what his current afflictions consisted of. He says, the arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. 
their heart is covered with fat. So we see from this verse that the hardened state of some unbelievers causes them to oppose believers by plastering them with false allegations. Pride is the greatest of lies. One of the greatest lies of our culture is the fact that, all, that you need to completely focus on yourself. You need to always, always be true to your heart. You need to be a lover of yourself. You need to be self-centered. That's based on the belief that real truth and goodness and fulfillment are found within ourselves. That's pride. That's arrogance. And it's a lie. Satan is the father of lies, so pride is one of the main things that he pushes. In verse 70, we are further, they're further described as having hearts covered with fat. It's a gross picture of one who has indulged in sin and is trying to get across the idea that they're callous. I mean, their hearts are hard. They are not affected by the word of God. They are not affected by the providential events that should get their attention, but they don't. They're in a sad and very dangerous place. In verse 69, the psalmist says that the arrogant have forged a lie against him. That word for forged speaks of plastering or smearing something. So the arrogant have not merely told lies. They have actually built a false narrative in order to give a picture that is not at all true. But they say it often enough that people believe it because it's said over and over and over again. Regularly sharing rumors, slander, gossip, lies, smearing with these lies. Why did they do this? Well, there's probably all kinds of reasons. There's just a few that came to my mind. For one thing, they want to discredit the Christian person in particular, so that no one will listen to what they have to say. Another thing, they do this as far as continuing to do it because they know that there are major holes in what they're saying, and they don't want people to notice those holes. So they keep saying them. It's also because the only way they can discredit, say, this godly man who wrote this, is by telling lies about him. They could not find flaws in his character to hold against them. So they had to make them up because there was nothing they could say. David experienced this. David was nothing but loyal and supportive to King Saul. Amazing how supportive and submission and obedient he was to King Saul. But Saul spread lies about David as if he was the one who was trying to lead a rebellion against him and take and, 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 and remove him from the throne and so forth. David wasn't doing that. So what Saul did, he took to be smearing him with lies, covering him with lies. Well, the best answer to those who speak lies about us is to continue to follow the Lord's precepts with all our hearts. In other words, keep doing the right thing. As Christians, our purpose in life is to love God, to please him with our life. In prayer, we need to search our hearts when these kind of, these kind of things are going on. 
In prayer, one thing we do need to do is search our hearts and ask God if there's any truth to what's being said. Is there any truth here? Is there anything I need to consider? Because even though it's maybe fundamentally a lie, God may be using that to mold us, to shape our character, to cause us to be more godly ourselves. So it's important, even though it's a lie, to consider is there a grain of truth in that that I need to be aware of? So we need to do that. There is a place for conversation to clear up misunderstandings. Um, so there's nothing, not, I don't think there's anything wrong with having conversations to try to address things that are being said that are false. A lot of times that's not going to be enough. But ultimately, the answer lies in continued pursuit of a holy life, delighting in the goodness of God. And that's what the psalmist models for us. Even though he was being plastered with lies, he says, with all my heart, I observe your precepts. That's my response. I'm going to keep doing the right thing. Matter of fact, I'm going to double down and make sure that I'm doing the right thing. When the next verse, the psalmist elaborates on the character of his enemies while also confirming the Uh, his own direction in life. So look at verse 70. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. So here we see this, that in the midst of disheartening attacks, the Lord enables his servants to find their delight in him through his precepts. So the psalmist enemies are arrogant. Their heart is covered with fat. They've made life very hard for him. They are doing their best to damage his reputation with lies. He has to deal with the suspicions of others who wonder if there's any truth in what's being said. It's got to be discouraging. So again, what he does here is with all his heart, he observes the Lord's precepts. His delight is in the law of God. That's where he finds solid truth. That's where he finds a sure foundation, even though things are unsettled around him. And really, as one who delights in the word of God is actually delighting in God himself. It's really hard to separate a person from their words. And especially God's words are good words, are right words. So therefore, delighting in his words are delighting is, is a way of delighting in him. And so that's what he does. He per- continues to do that. So we see here that God's servants are sustained in the present by his goodness to them, even when the arrogant are working against them. In verses 71 and 72, we see several truths that the Lord made especially real to the psalmist that he seems to be kind of uh, summing up here in the last uh, section of this stanza. He said, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So, third main point, we see this. God's servants learn from experience about God's goodness in their life and the great value of his word. There is just such maturity in these verses, verse 71, 72. It's a maturity that comes from holding fast to the Lord when you're going through trials. I want to sum up in three statements what I think the psalmist has learned here. First, he learned that affliction that was meant for others by for harm is meant for good to his servants by the good and sovereign Lord. He began in verse 65 by acknowledging the Lord in prayer, to the Lord in prayer, that he had dealt well with him. 
This is in spite of the fact that, as we already noted, that we have seen multiple references already in this psalm to uh, great hardships that he had already gone through. But God had dealt well with him. Verse 67, he admits there were times when he was going astray from the Lord, but God used affliction to bring him back to the Lord. In verses 69 and 70, he deals, talks about dealing with these people that were arrogant, hard-hearted, who had plastered him with lies. And so in verse 71, he tells us this important lesson that he learned from this. It's good for me that I was afflicted. It's good that I was afflicted. I don't know exactly all that he thought in the middle of the attacks, in the middle of the affliction. Hopefully, even in the middle of it, he could, he could have that, that confession of faith there of, of recognizing God was at work. But especially after it was over, he recognizes it was a good thing. This was actually a good thing. It was good for me to be afflicted. In every case, there were people who were seeking to harm him. They were spreading lies about him in the attempt to ruin his reputation. Not a single person who attacked the psalm did it with good motives. Nobody had good intentions. They all meant it for evil. But the psalmist learned the same lesson that Joseph learned many years earlier. Genesis 50, verse 21, Joseph, you remember this verse, Joseph was speaking to his brothers who sold him into slavery a number of years earlier. They also lied about it to their father that we talked about before, saying that he was dead. Joseph wisely says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So our God is perfectly good and because he is perfectly and divinely good what he does is good and that includes the affliction that comes into the life of his servants most of us know this truth it's easy to forget it when we're actually in the middle of dealing with those things that are really hard and really difficult but we need to learn to make this same statement before our good God and to say it's good for me that I was afflicted It's important, I think, for us to be able to make that statement to God. Thank you for these afflictions. Thank you for them. It's good for me because you are good and you do good. The second lesson is this. It is affliction that enables believers to have a deeper understanding of God's word. So after the psalmist says that it was good for him that he was afflicted, he gives a very important reason for what made it so good. He says, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. So it was his affliction that God used to enable him to better learn and understand the statutes from his word. Isn't that always the way it is? I mean, it's in the midst of our greatest trials that certain scriptures seem to become more real and more precious to us. For example, I would think one of the statutes that might take on new meaning for the psalmist might be the ninth commandment. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. I mean, he knew now from personal experience how harmful and hurtful that could be when people intentionally lie about you. And how are we going to gain true appreciation for God's promises until we find ourselves in need of those promises? 
For example, the Bible promises that he's opposed to the proud. He gives us that fact. But he gives grace to the humble. So not only do we see how dangerous pride is in that particular verse, but we also see that God promises he'll be gracious to us as we humble ourselves before him. Mike Scarberry, uh, when he was teaching through James, reminded us of a very important passage in this regard, James 1, 2-4, <clears throat> which says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's a really good verse to memorize. But it takes on new meaning when you're in the middle of some of those various colored trials, those various types of trials. Just such an important lesson for us to learn that it is good for us to be afflicted that we may learn the statutes of God. Affliction enables us to be better learners, better students. Which leads us directly to this third lesson. God's servants are able to see what a gold mine the word of God really is. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The most important textbook that we have when we're going through affliction is the word of God. Nothing is more valuable. Every aspect of the word of God is profitable to us. And as we noted, it's usually in trials that we especially see its value. Gold and silver are helpful things to have. I mean, we all use money regularly to buy things, to pay bills. Uh, but the laws of God's mouth are even more valuable, even more important. Help emphasize that, there's a quote here by Charles Spurgeon. He said, the same lips, the same lips which spoke us into existence have spoken the law by which we are to govern that existence. You and I exist because we were spoken into existence by God. Yes, he used fathers and mothers, but ultimately, life comes from God. And we're not just a physical body, we're also an eternal soul. And every single one of us have that eternal soul. And it's the word of God that is the most valuable thing we have to address our life, our whole life, body and soul. Affliction helps us to see what a gold mine we have available to us. And no matter how much gold you actually have that you've actually discovered in this word, I can tell you there's more to be discovered. There's more there. There's always more there. I want to close with one final observation. In Matthew 13, uh, Jesus gives multiple, all kinds of parables in that chapter. In one of them, he describes the kingdom of heaven as a field, and in that field is a hidden treasure. Well, that treasure, it's also described in other parables, a pearl of great price, that treasure is Jesus Christ himself, hidden in the field. To make that what makes the field so valuable is the treasure hidden in it. The word of God is like a field. And the greatest treasure within it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Ephesians 3, Paul describes the preaching that he would give. And when he was preaching, he described it as proclaiming the unfathomable riches 
of Christ. That's what his preaching consisted of because he was preaching the scriptures and pointing out how Christ was fulfillment and the focus of those scriptures. So that's what makes the scripture such a true treasure for all who believe. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we've had just to spend some time in this treasure uh, that you've given us. And Lord, I want to thank you that you're a God who is perfectly good. Perfectly good. And Lord, I ask for your help for each of us to have a greater appreciation of your goodness and to see your goodness at all times, but especially as we've looked at in these verses, in the times when things are going badly, when there's things that have hurt us, things that are very concerning, confused, whatever the situation might be. I know there's, a, there's all kinds of types of trials and afflictions, but whatever it might be, Lord, help us to be pulled back and reminded that you are the God who is good and you do what is good, and that includes what you're doing in us through those afflictions. Lord, help us not to be like Jacob. We can have a tendency to look at things and just look at circumstances that, well, it's like everything's working against me. Everything's just going against me. And Lord, it feels that way sometimes. But just like in Jacob's situation, it's not true. Help us to recognize it's not true. And help us to grow in our confidence of you in the middle of really hard things that you have brought into your li- our life because you're a good God who does good things. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, then you definitely don't know his goodness. And you're not going to be able to make those kind of applications in your trials. And you're, you probably have some now, but you're going to have more. I would invite you to come to Christ. A prayer like this would be a way to, uh, a way to proceed in that, in that way. And that is, Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I have fallen short of what I'm supposed to be as your creation. I've sinned, but I thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I want to receive him as my Savior. I want to receive him and submit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that, about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off, and we can do that later. Or those watching on the, web, on the uh, online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ.